Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Take that plunge, it will be okay. Have that courage, nothing bad's going to happen. Today I'm talking to Jack Gritt, who is a founding member and former president of Women in Nuclear UK and still works as an advisor. She's an executive board member of Women in Nuclear Global. Jack lives in Gloucestershire with her two dogs who we might hear during the podcast. We'll have to wait and see. And she has three children who all live locally to her. Welcome, Jack, and thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to catch up. And um, I'm interested in in your sort of early years. You grew up in Buckinghamshire in the Chalfonts. What was the young Jack like at school? How would you describe yourself? Well, I think lots of my reports said the class clown. So that might give you some insight into, uh, uh, yeah, I used to always kind of use humour, I think, to, to uh, get through my day and always had lots of friends, probably because I was the class clown but I was also always very focused you know on my studies and what I was doing at school um always sort of had good reports and actually when we were uh, people who are younger may not know about this but there used to be a thing called the 11 plus one year four of us me and three other friends were picked to be bumped up a year into the older class because we were so smart so that was quite an interesting little thing that we did so yeah I was sort of a bit smart and I passed my 11 plus and went to a grammar school which was another probably a bit of an old-fashioned thing now and um, yeah so it's relatively academic but always kind of quite laid back and and jokey as well. And so when, when you got to the grammar school were there particular activities or subjects or things that you that really fitted you that you enjoyed more than others yes I think I I was always quite uh, logical and methodical so I was always quite science and mathematical in my kind of thinking Um, but interestingly and I am glad to say this has changed to some degree um, girls weren't encouraged quite so much to follow those routes um so it was never really picked up on so I wouldn't say you know I sort of shone out as a star um because we were a bit backseat really and when you got to choosing your you know O levels as it was then or GCSEs there were very few girls that chose science so um you always felt like a little bit of someone in the shadows you know even in the classroom really I mean I'm really pleased to say that has changed to some degree now but there is still uh, a disparity I think with the uh, number of girls you know picking up on STEM subjects and you know that type of thing so we we try and work with WIN and you know by doing something like this to talk out to people um, to try and sort of raise that profile and encourage people more into those STEM subjects and not for the girls not to be in the shadows you know. It's really interesting you say that it comes through time and time again with with some of the women I speak to on this podcast about what it was like at school how the sciences were boys subjects and if you wanted to focus on them you kind of had to make a special case or get extra tuition or it simply wasn't allowed and so you know you were really kind of and, you, and that generation was really trying to pioneer and push that boundary 
forward so you could do what you were made to do you know yeah absolutely I mean I wouldn't say I had to make a special case but we were discouraged you know in conversation we were like you do really want to do that as you think that's really what you and I was like well yeah that's kind of what I'm good at and what I enjoy so why wouldn't I but you were sort of slightly discouraged really and, and questioned about your choice so I think as I say that that questioning and discouragement is definitely changed but I still think there is a lot to do to open um, that field to young girls. I still think there is some kind of myth around it that it's kind of subjects for boys. And hopefully these sorts of discussions will help people and encourage them. Um, so, so you did your O-levels at grammar school then. What happened next? Well, um, I mean, this is another kind of thing that I think I'd really love to change for future generations. And I'm pretty sure it was because I was a girl, but I didn't have high expectations set by my family. Uh, no one in our family had gone to university or done a degree. And that expectation wasn't really there. And I think parental expectation, and I would like to distinguish that from pressure, parental pressure, which I disagree with, but Parental expectation, I think, can play a huge part in, you know, some of our choices and, and where we go and encouragement to go into further education and, and do um, some further studies is, is very important. So I chose to go and do A-levels. And I mean, my parents were cock-a-hoop. They were like, wow, that's amazing, you know, that you're going to go and do A-levels. But there was certainly no expectation to go to university. That was not something that was ever really discussed. So I went and did some A-levels. Um, and whilst I was doing those, I, I had been a hairdresser. I'd been, you know, a weekend girl and started on an apprenticeship, subjected all my poor family to some very dodgy haircuts. Um, so I was doing my A-levels. I also sort of ran a beauty therapy course at the same time. I took some uh, exams in beauty therapy. Um, so when I came out of that at 18 and I'd, I'd got these qualifications, I started my own beauty therapy business so I guess there was an entrepreneur in me and as much as I started my own business at a young age but obviously with hindsight in the wrong field you know um, and I did actually feature in the Sunday Observer as young entrepreneur of the year or something or other you know there was some little uh, article yeah um, and I, I ran that for a couple of years and then I just thought this doesn't feel right this doesn't feel fulfilling this doesn't feel where I want to be. Um, it's very superficial, although I would not criticise others that do it because it's a very important role also to make people feel good about themselves. But for me, it did, didn't feel quite right. So I kind of wrapped up the business and then wasn't sure really what I wanted to do. Um, and living in Gloucestershire, I'm about five miles from Barclay Nuclear Power Station. And, you know, word on the street locally was it was an amazing place to work because they paid so well, you know, the money was so good. Um, so whilst looking, I worked in pubs and did all sorts of other things. And whilst looking around, uh, an advert came up for a general duties assistant at Barclay Power Station. And I thought, well, you know, that sounds all right. I'll give that a go. It was only a three month temporary contract. And um, so I rocked up, you know, in my Dorothy Perkins polyester suit for an interview and uh, astonishingly six people on the interview panel for a temporary three-month job back in the day um 
And as I walked in, everybody's sort of jaws dropped and there was this kind of awkward moment. And I was like, oh, what, why is this awkward? You know, it just feels wrong. And they, you didn't have to tick a box back then to say whether you were a male or a female. And because I was Jack Grit, they were expecting a man to walk in and they got me in my little dusty pea suit. And they said, do you know what the job is? And I said, we had general duties assistant. So I assume, you know, answering phones, doing a bit of filing. And they went, mm, no, that's our um, elevated terminology for a labourer. So rather than panic and run, I made a joke, as I would, and said, right, well, I'll just pop home and get my coveralls and Wellington boots on and I'll come back and we'll resume the interview, shall I? To which they all laughed and said, where do you want to proceed? And I said, of course, you know. So um, it was the CGB back then. And my very first job was as a labourer, uh, otherwise known as a general duties assistant. So I used to clean the toilet, sludge out the sewage pit, scrape the pigeon poo off the turbine hall gantry, drive the forklift trucks, move low active waste around, uh, drive a Land Rover with a trailer, um, all those kind of things. Um, but what was amazing about it was that when I got on site and I got to the reactors and I went up on pile cap, it was pretty much an epiphany. You know, it was pretty much, wow, I did not know this existed. Wow, this is incredible. Wow, what do I do to not be a labourer? <laughs> that's amazing isn't it so what i can see in that sort of story is one you 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 recognized what was not right for you and made a decision to move out of it your business and the beauty therapist and that was a brave decision because you didn't really have a plan you just knew this wasn't right so you you know to stay there was not the right thing so you were going to come out of that and then the second thing is you were open to all offers really you know you would try your hand at anything. And it turned out that it was going to be at Barclay Nuclear Power Station. And by taking those steps with an open mind, you found a place that all of a sudden your eyes were opened and you thought, wow, what a great story. Yeah, absolutely. And I wouldn't always advocate not having a plan if you've got children or you're older, but I was free. I had no ties at that point. And I, yeah, I didn't need the plan. And actually... Sometimes it's just great to not have a plan to, to go where your feet take you. OK, so you're, you're working now at, at Barclay Nuclear Power Station. You've seen the wonder of the silence on a pile cap, which always amazes me because there's huge power, but it's very quiet power, isn't it? Unlike the turbine halls. So how, how did your sort of role develop and how did you develop your, your sort of skills and so on in that uh, in that place? I mean, I moved from being a, a proper, you know, muck and dirt labourer to being someone that worked within the reactor side, which was called a CRA and um, change room attendant. But it meant that you helped everybody on um, uh, boiler entries, duct entries, you know, during the outages and the maintenance. And so I just started reading a lot because you had a lot of time to do that. So if you're a safety person, once someone had kind of got into the, the boiler, you were just sitting there and you only had to spring into action if an alarm went or you were mic'd up if someone said do something. And so the order of the day was to, to read. I'm not sure actually if you'd be allowed to do that now, but um, 
So I started to read a lot, you know, about what options there were within the industry. So, you know, kind of knowledge is power type stuff and, and understanding where I wanted to be. And then quickly realized that the, the key thing was that I needed more uh, qualifications. So again, you know, I'm not sure if this day and age, if qualifications are always the answer, they often are. But then certainly in the CGB, it was literally just a bar between the grades in, in and you could not pass that bar unless you had an H&D or a degree. And, and I knew I wanted to be that side, you know, of, of, of the bar. So I applied, they had an educational incentive scheme at the power station and I applied for funding to go and do uh, an HNC in physics and chemistry. Um, and that was quite tough because um, A, I was a girl and I, I would like to point out I was the first female on, on site other than the admin block. So actually out on site or react site, I was the only woman at that point at Berkeley. Um, so then this woman comes along and says, and I want to go and do some studying, please, because I don't want to be a labourer anymore. And they go, but you're a girl and you're, you're a labourer. Um, so it took a little while to convince them. Obviously, I did have my O-levels and A-levels to kind of back me up. They, what I had to do was the very first year, I had to use all my annual leave to study. And I worked shift patterns, so sometimes they were, it was on my days off anyway. But, they fund, but the company funded the, the cost. Uh, and then from year two, they gave me the time off and the funding. And I think that first year was just to demonstrate my commitment to my studies and that I you know, wasn't just going to drop out. How did you make the case and in effect, I suppose, win that? It's not an argument, but just, let's call it a discussion. Well, I think, firstly, I've always been resilient. You know, I, I have moments and I have self-doubt like most people and I have times when it feels too tough. But overall, I maintain a positivity that gives me this resilience as well. So I think those are two really key things in anybody's career is you know a positive attitude to what you can achieve and resilience when the going gets tough so I think I won them over by uh, the fact that they saw me constantly studying independently in the workplace in the canteen when I always have my nose in a book um, making some very considered cases to them in in writing and also um finding advocates so I found people within the power station who had a broader view and and you know felt that this was the right thing to do and I used them as advocates for you know my case um, and that was either in the day-to-day -day in conversation but also in writing you know some of them wrote little passages for me I said could you write me a little um, kind of almost like a little reference and yeah so I think a combination of those things got me through uh, as in I actually got the funding um, and my own personal attitude kept me going. And your commitment to use your annual leave in, the, in that first year as well so you were really sort of putting yourself in, in you know forward in what not just what you said in words but actually this was important to you as a person and actually it was a real partnership between you and your commitment and the cgb at the time you know eventually supporting you on that pathway 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's not only was your annual leave, you know, it was your commitment, because obviously that was just the time you were in college, but it was the commitment to study in the evenings on your days off as well, which, you know, a lot of people always just think you kind of reap what you sow, you know. So if you put that commitment in, you'll see the benefits come back. You ended up uh, studying mathematics. Um, Obviously, you know, physics and maths are very closely linked. And I'd always loved maths. And then I just, I don't know whether I got the study bug, but I suddenly felt that the HNC wasn't enough and I wanted to uh, get a degree. I, again, um, the CGB did fund me to, to do that as well, which was it was incredible. You know, the support I had for them uh, back then, given the circumstances, given that women weren't really working at the power station. I mean, they were uh, whilst they were, there may have been a bit of a battle to get there. They were very encouraging and very supportive. You know? um, so off I toddled. And uh, by this time, I am married and having children as well. So that was an interesting challenge. Um, in fact, when I sat my second year finals, um, my paper was on complex calculus. So as if calculus isn't hard enough, let's go and throw it in an imaginary plane and uh, and see what we can do with that. Um, and my second child, Charlotte, was two weeks old. And so I had to take her with me because um, uh, they wouldn't allow me any sort of special favors. It was do the exam or don't do the exam. So I took her with me with my husband and explained to the invigilator that I may have to go out to feed her partway through the exam. And he said, that's fine, but I'll have to come with you. So um, sat the exam, I could see my husband out of the window on the side of the exam walking up and down with the push chair. Um, and, and then at one point he got to that point where he's, you know, hand signaling, you know, SOS, SOS, we need you out. And uh, so the invigilator went out with me and sat with, it was slightly embarrassed, bless him, because I was sitting breastfeeding my two week old child. But anyway, he did it, um, you know, quick top up, back in, back to the exam. So that was uh, the end of year two. And at the end of year three, I was about when I actually picked up my degree and went for my ceremony with my flat cap and cape. I was about eight and a half months pregnant with my third child, George. So um, hard work to be having a family. But again, looking for opportunity, looking for that positive spin on things. It enabled me to go to college full time because I was on maternity leave in bouts. Um, and because Charlotte and George were quite close together um, and that enabled me to go full time whereas had I done my degree kind of part-time from whilst working it would have taken quite a few years but I, I completed it in the three years. I think that's inspirational I mean you know the commitment that you were showing not just to your family but also to your development and growth as a person through through studying and therefore you know, we'll come on and say how that impacted your, your time with the CGB in a minute. Um, it's such a lesson to people, I think. You know, often I find with people I talk to today, if, if you're asking them to do anything, um, uh, which might be developing, you know, themselves and so on, often the first question is, what's the project code? Well, what you were showing was actually it's about you and the bit that you put into it that makes a massive difference, not just to yourself, but also to what you end up doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's about taking courage because because was I fearful at times? Yes, that I was taking on too much. Yes. You know, that I had a full time job. 
was having children, um, was studying. Did it seem overwhelming at times? Absolutely. Um, did I question my sanity and my choices? Yes. But I knew deep down that this is what I want to do. This is the career I want to have. This is where I want to work. And therefore we have to make choices and we have to grab opportunities. And, and actually, you know, in hindsight, it didn't seem as hard now. <laughs> I mean, it probably was, you know, at the time, I guess it was, it was quite something. And you know what else? Other people need to support you because I couldn't have done it without my husband. You know, he was there, you know, doing the feeds and sorting things out while I had my nose in a mask book, you know. Um, so, you know, support network around you. If you're looking to change something, do something, talk to people, even if it's the person that's on the end of the phone to encourage you to keep going when you have moments of, you know, weakness where you feel, gosh, you know, do I give this up? You know, even just having people who will continue to encourage you is really important. So how did that then sort of impact your the way your job developed uh, at the CGB? Before I'd finished my degree, I because I was studying and things and I'd been at the power station a while, I was able to start applying for other jobs. So I became a health physics monitor. Um, so that was kind of one of the next steps up. And that was great because it was a little more technical and a little more at the cold face, as it were, of uh, nuclear power generation. So that was great. Um, but then, as I say, there was this definite bar, you know, that you couldn't cross. So it was then a case of applying for all sorts of jobs that interested me, that took me into this, what they call the scientific and technical um, realm. And um, I was given a job with um, Malcolm Pick as a radiochemist. So I, uh, I was working in the radiochemistry area, um, really interesting stuff. We used to have a, I can still remember it, inductively coupled plasma optical emission spectrometer, whoa, um, where we used to kind of, neb um, we used to pop things in acid and get them into a liquid solution and nebulize them through the ICPOES to see whether they were compatible with the reactor. So if you wanted to put anything in the reactor when you were doing channel inspections, they ha you had to make sure it's compatible. So um, it was great fun, but I wasn't a great chemist. <laughs> I wasn't a great chemist, um, but I worked really hard and gave it my all. And I think, again, you know, you have a few people that see something in you. Uh, and whilst I was in that department, I started my chartership. So to become a chartered mathematician. And um, I did uh, a study on uh, an atmospheric dispersion model um, for, you know, if we had an incident or accident. And uh, so that was very interesting time and gained my chartership. And then lots of jobs, which I would, you'd probably bore you with if I went through them all. But um, after that, application process to cross into the scientific and technical I never really applied for another job after that it was always about people uh, either putting yourself forward um, or people just recognizing your talent so I have uh, certain people in the organization to thank you know who recognized my ability or could see my potential uh, and then I guess I have myself to thank because I took myself out of my comfort zone and I would go and talk to people in departments and say, I would really like 
a job in your uh, in this area you know what's coming up and uh, and sometimes I think well I don't know a lot about this yet but I will you know once they give me the job then I'll just learn it <laughs> so so I worked in safety risk and optimization and I was a safety case author and officer writing safety cases and then I got into project management and so on and so forth and uh, so the most interesting thing is I started there at 21 as a grade one labourer and there were the equivalent of 13 grades through through the company. It was only actually eight, but you had lower grade eight, upper grade eight. And it, so if you took all the lower and uppers, there was like 13 grades. And um, by the time I was 34, I was the highest grade I could be. So the grade 13. And what, what a, an amazing journey as well of of. Of, of pushing the boundary, getting over that sort of, I'll call it a glass ceiling, if you know what I mean, that, that bar you talked about, um, but also thinking and applying for jobs, but other people seeing you and encouraging you as well. And, you know, we were talking earlier um, about people that we we sort of see where we work or in the industry and things like that. And there's just something about them and it's almost intangible There's a spark or um, something where you think there's something in this person, there's, there's more to this person than I see today. And I think, you know, part of our role in a way is to try and encourage those people as you were encouraged um, at Magnox. Yeah, do you know what I think is really important? It's this idea of inclusion and it's been woven through my everything that I've done in my career and then tried to promote and, you know, dedicate my services to. And there were people back then who saw my potential but there were people who didn't now that's just kind of a matter of preference a matter of personality uh, sometimes it's a matter of well that other person that isn't seeing my potential just doesn't know me well enough they haven't got to know the real me they maybe just see the surface me in a meeting where I might be a bit loud for them or I might be a bit too got too much to say for them or or in some meetings might be too introverted for them, you know, because some meetings you sit there very quietly thinking what the heck's going on. And so something really important, I think, for anybody out there embarking on their career journey or part way through, make sure people see the authentic you, you know, take time to build relationships and let people see the authentic you. Still accept that, some people may never be your advocate because we are human beings and that is just how it goes. So use your time wisely with the people that are going to be your advocates, you know, that do see your potential, that do encourage you, um, that are going to give you a shot. Um, but equally to those in the positions of power, challenge your inclusion radar you know just because someone isn't like you and maybe their personality doesn't quite fit doesn't mean they wouldn't be brilliant at their job you know um so I think there's something there about the power is with both parties it's with the the people doing the hiring but it's also with you to break down those barriers to let people see the authentic you and to see what you have what you can bring you know and that's a journey of discovery isn't it because when you start you know, your journey, you know, at school and onwards, you don't really know quite what you've got, but by exploring different things and pushing different boundaries and making brave decisions, you start to discover that. And and the hunger that you've had to grow and develop and, you know, see how you can, you know, be the best you you can be through the studying, through the jobs, through the, you know, the career journey 
you're on, um, I think is a, is a great example to, to younger people, you know. Um, I'm going to ask you a, a question about um, uh, the, the time when you're in a role when you've, you've then changed and moved company because you, you moved eventually, you went to Jacobs and you've worked for Horizon Nuclear Power and Urenco and so on. How do you know when the right time to make that move is or, or what prompts you or what has prompted you into those sorts of moves? Has there been a common reason or a common thread that you can identify? In my case, no, there, there was nothing. I am, by nature, I am a very loyal individual. And, you know, I, I in the past, I've seen this loyalty as something that you stay with one company, you know, you give them your all, you, you build. And that's what happened with Magnox. You know, I was there for 22 years. And there was a day when I thought, is this it? Will I be here for 40 years? You know, and then I am my career you know, this big wide world out there, you know, the landscape had changed over the years because all of the fleet within the UK was once owned by CGB and National Power and all the different, you know, companies that that, that became. But by this point, obviously, Magnox only had the Magnox stations and, uh, you know, EDF had, the, or it may have been British Energy at the time, had the um, AGRs and so on. So it was like, so what if I want to do something different, more exciting? And I think also having reached that kind of highest grade in the company, there was this question, well, what, what now? And it, and it wasn't about the money, let's be clear, but it was about the diversity of what you could do because you kind of hit this place that's associated with your grade. And then it's like, well, how many things can I do within that grade? You know, it's all sideways steps. And um, it, was, it was really difficult and uh, slightly perversely, I am a great change advocate, change within a company. I am on it. I embrace change. I love it. In fact, it's what energizes me really, you know, we have change, but change for me personally, like to move company, terrified, absolutely terrified. Um, and my biggest fear was if I move away from Magnox, will I have transferable skills? will what I've learned here in this rather, I felt sort of somewhat institutionalized in Magnox because it's pretty old school, you know, it was um, quite civil service type stuff, very proceduralized and I'd been there 22 years, you know, I didn't know anything else. Will my skills be transferable in the big wide world? And I really was fearful of that. I was really fearful of failure, that they would not be, that I wouldn't have the skills I thought I had. Um, so took the plunge because because you know I spoke to Jacobs. We'd worked with them within Magnox. They had a great role um, as as head of um, quality, which I got changed to uh, head of performance because I don't like the idea of quality being synonymous with tick boxes and audits. I like to think of quality as what people do and why they do it and how they do it. So head of performance. And I took the plunge and I tell you, I was terrified. I needn't have been. And that would be my message to anyone listening. Don't let that fear get in the way and stop you because I had nothing to fear. When I actually landed, I almost felt like I had a little bit more in my toolbox than quite a few of the people around me. And I was like, wow, I, I, I'm answering stuff they don't know. This is really cool. <laughs> um, 
So I needn't have feared and, and I didn't look back. I, I loved my time at Magnox, but I absolutely adored my time at Jacobs because it was a wider horizon, the commercial entity. It covered more than just nuclear, although I stayed attached to the nuclear industry, but you had an opportunity to get involved in all sorts of things across industry. And, and it was fabulous, best, best thing I ever did. So don't be fearful people out there if you, get an opportunity or feel like a change, take the plunge. Yeah, and it was another example of you stepping out of a comfort zone, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was probably the biggest time I stepped out of my comfort zone. I, I was really terrible. Yeah, because 22 years, everyone knows you. You know everyone in a business. You're comfortable. You know how the kind of politics work. You know, it's all just kind of quite easy. I mean, some of the day-to-day -day stuff was hard, but, you know, the, the environment was quite easy. And um, so I was desperately fearful. Biggest fear, biggest chance I took, I think. And was there any sort of culture shock when you landed in Jacobs? Was the culture different there? Freedom, much more freedom. You could kind of pitch an idea and people would go, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Do it. You know, I found great freedom to move as I felt and to introduce uh, new ideas. And that's really where I started to roll out the inclusion and diversity campaign, um, aside from working with women in nuclear, because they, they weren't conceived at that point. Um, <clears throat> but through my own experiences, I mean, to be honest, I, I built a preschool when, when I was uh, early years of Magnox. Um, and it was because I was so frustrated at the lack of availability for childcare before school and after school, you know, with because uh, we're back in the early 90s now. And uh, that, that those sorts of things weren't so readily available. And I really wanted to encourage women to keep their careers, keep their jobs if they wanted to, uh, you know, if people want to give up work and be with their children, absolutely wonderful. But for me, I knew I wanted to stay working. Um, and so I literally built a preschool from digging the holes in the ground to pour in the concrete uh, up at the local school. Um, so that was another project. But really what I didn't realise I was doing then was thinking about inclusion thinking about making ways easier for people to remain included in the workplace. Um, and, and then started a whole programme at Jacobs, um, which was a sort of first because now that, you, I mean, there are roles called the DNI head of department or whatever, but, but then there wasn't, nobody had that role, you know. So we run a programme there. And I think that's why it's so important, you know, your role in that, because you know, I'll call you a pioneer because you were pushing boundaries, you know, from school and the subjects you did and, uh, and onwards and, you know, being the only female, you know, within the Magnox workforce, labouring away and, and, and developing yourself and, and, and pushing to get the, um, the, the further uh, development and training and, and, and degree and all the rest of it. Because you can see what would have made your journey easier and therefore, you've got a you know a unique perspective on how to address that within our industry, and that's why this whole diversity thing is so important, because we can all see how our journey has been impacted and what could have been done to make it easier or to to give more encouragement or more opportunity to a wider range of people, and and the really practical things, as as you said, 
building a preschool you know putting in place things at Jacobs that would make a difference to others yep absolutely and and I probably should just give a shout out to Sue Parry because she built the preschool with me that was a two two woman two woman uh, adventure um but it was yeah it was, it, was, it was amazing and I think that is exactly it I think I look back at what my challenges were and say how can I try and change those for others so you know I was trying to study and work and have three children you know, once they're in school, no problem. But then I still had this front end, back end, you know, gap. So what do we do about that? Right, let's let's plug that gap, you know. Um, and then I've always tried to, I've always been on a mentoring scheme so that I can have one-to-one um, -one with, uh, with men and women. But obviously I've been concerned that the women are getting the right um, kind of help and support that they need to navigate. Uh, their careers in a male-dominated industry and uh, and I would also like to add I love men and I love working with men uh, it's always very difficult when you get onto the sort of uh, gender parity issues and and the gender balance conversation that you don't come across as sounding like somebody that's uh, bitter or I am absolutely not bitter I just see it as it is what it is through years of um, social um, socialization of how we all are and that's going to take years to break down and change and I'm just going to be part of that journey but I need men with me supporting me helping me um, as well as you know organizations like WIN and, and, and all the other actual wonderful organizations out there so NSSG um, you know wise other people that are all trying to help pave the way to make it more of an equitable uh, place for women particularly in the nuclear industry you know Mm. And it does feel like there's more of a, a movement or a recognition of not just what should be done, but the value of a diverse work for, workforce and how that actually improves what we do and how we do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the biggest question I get, you know, should should we be getting the gender balance right? Yes. Why? Because morally we should. Uh, but what happens when you've got diversity of thinking, diversity of people? You get better discussion, you get better challenge, you get better outcomes, you get a better business. You know, it's, there, it's an absolute direct correlation to business benefit and success with diverse teams. So why, why would we not fit? Absolutely. You know, it's a really powerful message and a motivator and, you know, really grateful for what you've, what you've done and what you continue to do for diversity in, in, in this sector and, and now through Global, Win Global as well. So I'm going to take you back to when you were working as a, a hairdresser and you had your, your business, your, your beautician business, right? And it was dawning on you that this this wasn't quite it for you. And you were going through that internal thought process. I'm sure, should I do this? Shouldn't I? What, you know, what's my next step? I don't know, but I need to do something. What bit of advice would you give your younger self at that point in her life? I think it goes back to courage because although I did just give up without a plan and then, you know, luckily that led me to my, my ultimate career um it's it's still you know you you do you feel fearful you wonder if you're doing the right thing and I think I wished I'd had more self-confidence and belief it will be okay take that plunge it will be okay have that courage nothing bad's gonna happen you know um 
also sort of a great believer in I, I don't know if it's like fate because that was a bit of a funny one to when you're a mathematician starting to dabble in the whole idea of fate that's quite interesting but I do believe there's something about opportunities come along if you are out there taking chances you know if you're out there grabbing opportunities you know I started with Win UK as a founder member back in 2014 um, and it was I just did it because it was something I believed in I didn't do it for financial gain because it's a voluntary role I didn't do it for exposure or for my own personal gain because at that point no one even knew what women in nuclear was we were just a bunch of people saying this is what we're going to do I did it because I believed in it I did it because I wanted to now actually as you know a spin-off of that it it has provided exposure it has provided opportunities to travel it has provided opportunities to widen my knowledge of the subject matter it's provided Wow, it's provided so so much, um, so much growth for me. And why did I do it? Because I believed in it, but for no other reason. So sometimes, I guess, looking back, what would I say to myself? You don't always have to have a reason. If something doesn't feel right, trust your instincts, change to something that does feel right, even if you can't quite place any rationale around it. Or, you know, sometimes life's organic. In fact, mainly, <laughs> that's a funny statement to make. I mean, life's definitely organic. But you know what I mean? It's uh, things will happen. The Celestine prophecy, you know, things will happen. I love that phrase, trust your instinct. Because often I find if, if I'm reading a, you know, a technical report or even a safety case and I reflect on it, sometimes I just have that feeling that, and I can't put my finger on it, but there's something that doesn't feel right. And it's a similar thing to what you were saying there. It's, you know, if something doesn't feel right, do something about it, even if you can't explain it and put it into words. Because those those instincts are important and they, they can help to guide us, you know, forward in our, in our lives and our careers. They can, yeah. And I think we shut down our intuition a little bit these days. You know, we have to overanalyze and try and like let your intuitive side come to the fore and and try and ride with that because I I think it will generally serve you well. Jack, it's been great to spend some time with you this morning. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you. I've had a blast. See, it's another thing that I thought would be terrifying to do and actually... Not so much. <laughs> we have a good chat, don't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.